Have you ever had a situation where you knew you were innocent, but you were being falsely accused? This is one of the most frustrating experiences if you've been through this. Nothing leaves you feeling more helpless than being falsely accused, especially if the person who's accusing you has more power, more influence, more position, whatever, than you do. And just being in a place where people have to try to sort out who's telling the truth, and you know, you know that you're innocent. Well, this is exactly the situation that David found himself in. And his response to it is to take it to God and have confidence that God can sort it out. This psalm is a prayer for deliverance for an innocent person, right? David here, the author of the, author of the psalm, is crying out to God when he's falsely maligned, and he's asking God for deliverance. So it's, it's based off the, the intro of Psalm 18, which is the next uh, psalm here we're going to look at next week. It seems like the context for this section of Psalms might have to might be in line with Psalm 18, just like we saw some of the early Psalms were kind of in line with that Absalom story. And Psalm 18 references uh, David's deliverance from the hand of Saul. So the context here in terms of his being falsely accused might be the whole saga where he's running from Saul, defending himself, hiding, and not able to vindicate his cause. And so during that time, he's crying out to God. He's asking God to sort these things out. Um, so these, these times of wanting vindication are common with the people of God. When others will accuse us of wrongdoing and we need vindication, we have to go to God and trust that he's going to sort these things out. There's a lot of connections in this Psalm, Psalm 17, with Psalm 15 and 16. So you'll see some of these connections. One is that theme of taking refuge in Yahweh, which has been a theme for all these Psalms, or Yahweh's protection, or even this, there's a specific word used in each of these Psalms that's kind of rare, which speaks to being shaken. So David has confidence that he won't be shaken by those who are his enemies. Now there are also echoes in this Psalm of Moses's songs. You may not be familiar with these, but back in Exodus chapter 15 and in Deuteronomy 32, Moses has two different songs that he sings. Exodus 15 is a song of deliverance after the crossing of the Red Sea, rejoicing in God's protection and deliverance of his people. And the Deuteronomy 32 is this psalm, the song which we talk about in, you know, Daily Gospel episodes back, back for that section, but where Moses is, is essentially, oh, sorry, Moses is essentially saying that they're going to slip, that the people of Israel are going to fall away from um, the purpose God has for them. So it indicates these two passages indicate a covenant context for this psalm that David, as he's praying, is not simply looking to his own circumstances, but he's trusting in the story of God and the story of God's people and how God's worked through his people. So let's jump into it. So the, the heading here says a prayer of David. That word prayer is going to be used several times in headings of Psalms, and it, it probably means something like entreaty um, so or a, a lament. So this is the first time it's being used, so it sort of stands out for us. So he's, he's asking God, entreating God to act on his behalf. Now the Psalm sort of breaks down into three big sections. We're going to see first he's praying, God, vindicate me. Then he's praying, God, protect me. And then finally, he's praying, God, deliver me. So let's look, look at this in order. So first we see in verses 1 to 5, his prayer, God, vindicate me. God, vindicate me. Verse 1, he says, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So this first phrase 
is literally hear righteousness, hear righteousness. David wants God in the psalm to see accurately that he is innocent and to vindicate him, to prove his righteousness. And so in this prayer, he's being sincere, right? He says that he's praying with lips free of deceit. So he's being sincere and honest and truthful in his prayer to God. Verse 2 says, From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So that word vindication is a key word. It means judgment. It's this word mishpat. So it just means judgment. And again, David is assuming that he's in the right, and he's asking God to act on his behalf, to reveal the truth, to vindicate him. Then he asked that God would literally see the right. So when it says, let your eyes behold the right, he's just saying, see that which is right. He's asking God to accurately perceive his situation, to see what is happening, and to act on the basis of what is true. So he's saying, God, can you accurately see what is right and what is wrong, and can you make a judgment on the basis of that? And this is so good because this is something that we can always be confident that God will do. God always sees accurately. He sees the full story. He sees the motives that are hidden that no one else sees, and he will one day act to bring justice to situations where others can't see the truth. Then he points in verses 3 to 5 to why his cause is just. And he essentially says here that God has examined him and tested him. So he knows, God knows intimately who he is. He's tested him, and the image here is like testing metal. He's, um, or, or sorry, he's tried him in verse three, and then tested him is the idea of being interrogated, right? That his, his um, this idea of, of being tested is really looking into something and examining something. So God is testing and trying him to see if he's the real deal. And both his heart and his mouth and actually his actions as well, all of them reflect a life that is devoted to God. So he moves from his interior self, his heart, to his external action, his speech, and his works. And he's saying in all of these, God can judge and see that I have done the right thing. And so we see here the principle that was laid out in Psalm 1 of two different ways. Again, I keep bringing this up because it's, it's so relevant throughout the Psalms. If you never watched our Psalm 1 video, you should definitely go back and watch that one because it lays a foundation for everything to come, Psalm 1 and 2. But again, the same principles here that these two different ways, the ways of the violent in verse 4 and God's paths in verse 5. And so David is saying, I'm rejecting the ways of the wicked, the roads of robbers is kind of a way of translating it. And instead, I'm embracing the paths of God. I'm going the way that God has called me to go. So he cries out first for God's vindication, for God to reveal his truth. Now, when we hear David speaking about his own righteousness, it's easy for us to think that he's claiming to be entirely free from any sin. We know in David's story that's not true. David does sin. He is a flawed human being. What he's speaking to here, I think, is not absolute righteousness, but relative righteousness to this cause, to this specific accusation. He's saying, in the case of Saul and what Saul thinks is true, David is innocent. He has not done the things that Saul has said that he has done. And so he wants to be vindicated through that. The next section is verses 6 and 12, where he's praying, God, protect me. God, protect me. He asks first in this section that God would hear him. Look at verse 6. He says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. So I love this amazing confidence that he has. God will hear him. It's certain. He knows that God will answer him. 
And of course, hearing here doesn't just mean that God you know, takes in the sound, but that God's going to act on behalf of David as a result of hearing. It, it implies God's action for him. So he asked God to hear him. He asked God to rescue him in verse 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So interesting things in this in this section, right? Obviously, the mention of the right hand was come. It was mentioned two times in Psalm 16. We know that the right hand of God is where He has pleasures forevermore. So He brings that same language again as a place of strength and refuge for David. But interesting things here are this term steadfast love. So this is the the, the Hebrew word Chesed, and Chesed is God's covenant love. It's his covenant loyalty to his people. And it harks back to the salvation he gave to them in the Exodus story. So this is where he shows chesed for the first time, and he shows it again and again throughout the Bible. So he's calling on the covenant love of God. So he's looking not just at his own situation, but at the history of God's dealing with his people, and he's claiming the same kind of deliverance for himself. And then he uses this word savior. That's a very interesting word as well. A savior is someone who delivers, right? A deliverer, it's a... a, Interesting word with a long history in Israel and in the Old Testament. The first time it's used in the Bible is of um, someone who can deliver a woman who is being sexually assaulted, right? So it's in Deuteronomy, I think, 22, and it's speaking to, you know, uh, if there's no one to deliver this woman. So that's the first time it's used. It's then used in Deuteronomy 28 in the curses against Israel to refer to um, there not being a Savior for Israel. So if, if Israel turns away from God, doesn't trust in him, doesn't look to him, and goes to idols instead, there's going to be no savior for Israel. So part of part of the curse, and really at the core of the curse, is that there's no savior. Look at Deuteronomy 28, verse 29, and verse 31, if you want to read verses about that. And then this title of savior is used over and over again in Isaiah. And it's used mostly in the last section of Isaiah, and it functions like a title for Yahweh that Yahweh is the Savior of Israel. And so the idea is, throughout all of these, is that um, if you cry out to God, he's going to rescue you. I should also mention, I forgot this, but also in the book of Judges, when Israel sins against God, they have people come and oppress them, and then they cry out, God gives them deliverers or saviors is the word that's used in the book of Judges. So if you don't trust in God, you're not going to have a savior, but if you cry out to God, God loves to save you and to be the savior of Israel. So David here, I think what we see here is David knows the history of Israel very well. He understands God's covenant love. He understands that God is the savior. He understands how God acts. And so he's claiming the same truths, the same realities about God in his own life. He's saying, I know that if you call on God, that God's going to answer in salvation. And so I'm calling on you, God. I'm reaching out to you. I'm asking you to rescue me because that's who you are. He then asked God to protect him. I love verses 8 and 9. It's such a beautiful language. Again, he says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. So keep me as the apple of your eye. That's a familiar phrase for us in English, right? It's, it's an idiom in English. It, the, the language there could also be translated as the pupil of your eye. So the idea, in other words, is that the eye is something that's very sensitive and very precious to us, and the pupil is at the center 
of the eye. And so something being the apple of your eye or the pupil of your eye is something that is vulnerable and needs protection. It's something precious to you. And so you're quick if someone attacks your eye or something flies into your eye. We have very quick reactions to protect ourselves from damage because it's such an important and precious area of our bodies. And so in the same way, he's asking for God to treat him that way, to protect him in the same way. He asked God to hide him under the shadow of his wings, which speaks to coming under God's protection. And he, he needs God to protect him from these deadly enemies all around him, which literally that deadly enemies can be translated as enemies of my soul. So he's asking for God's protection in his life. In verses 10 and 12, he speaks more of these enemies and their hatred of him. We see that they're arrogant, they're unfeeling, that they are committed and focused on destroying David, and he compares them to a lion eager to tear and waiting in ambush. So these people are hateful, they are violent, they want to destroy him, and, and David needs God's protection. And then we see the final section of the psalm in verses 13 to 15 where David prays, God, deliver me. God, deliver me. Verse 13, arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. The verbs here are strong. There's four verbs in this of kind of imperatives like commands to God, which are really just sort of invoking God's help. Arise, right, which means stand up, take action, confront, confront this person to their face. Subdue, which means to make someone bow in full submission to Yahweh and deliver or rescue. He's praying here for God to take action, to stand up against his enemies and to deliver him from this problem. What he needs most of all is for God to take action. That's the only thing that's going to fix this situation for him. Verse 14, he says, From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. So he's still kind of continuing the thought of verse 13, where the main you know verb there is deliver. So you could kind of read that in where he says, from men. He's saying, deliver from men by your hand. Deliver from men of the world whose portion is in this life. So he's asking for God to deliver him from these people, but he's acknowledging that these people, his enemies, have no hope beyond this life. That they store up things and they, are, they have treasures that are here on this earth, but they have nothing beyond that. And so he's, he's saying he understands that they can't take anything with them after the grave, that they have no hope beyond this life, and that they're about to enter into their greatest destruction. So this sets up for the final verse where David realizes that his hope is different. What he looks to is much different. Verse 15, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I love this because he's been asking the whole psalm for vindication, for deliverance, but here at the end, he reminds us that deliverance is never simply an end in and of itself. That salvation isn't the thing that we need most of all. That we don't just need to be forgiven by God or delivered by God, whether physically or spiritually. But all of those things have an ultimate end. They have an ultimate goal, which is that we would know God. See, in all of the Bible, the ultimate prize, the ultimate aim for all of humans is God himself, to know him, to see him, to be in his presence. That's what it's all about. 
And so we understand here, David sees that the reason he needs deliverance is so that he can see God. It reminds me of the Aaronic blessing in Numbers 6, right, verses 24 to 27, where the, the hope is to see God's face, right? Like we're blessed when God's face shines upon us, when we're in his presence seeing his face. Vindication for David would mean having God's full presence in his life. Instead of seeing his enemies continually and focusing on them, to be able to behold and see only God. That's what David wants most of all. The greatest gift is God himself. So a few thoughts from this psalm, which is so instructive in so many ways. But one is, again, David is so grounded in history. He, he knows the story of his people. He knows that he's part of the covenant people of God. He knows he's under this covenant, and so he's asking for God to act in a way that's similar to how he's acted throughout the story of Scripture. He knows the patterns. He knows the character of God as a result, and so he's, he's claiming the steadfast love of God and the salvation that God gave in the past to his people. And for us, if we know our story, we can claim the same thing. You are an inheritor of the story of Israel. And so when you look at these people, you're seeing your own people. In 1 Corinthians 1, or, or 10, 1, Paul refers to our fathers. Speaking to a Jewish audience predominantly, right, to these Corinthians, he's saying our fathers, and then he goes on to speak of the story of the Exodus. In other words, the forefathers of Israel, those are our spiritual forefathers. We inherit this story. This is our story. So know the story and know your place in the story. That's how you can then, with confidence, claim the salvation deliverance that only God can give. So that's that's the first thing is be grounded in history. Know the story of God. Know that the righteous cause will win. The righteous cause will win because God is righteous and he loves righteousness. If you have acted in a righteous way, even if you're being attacked for it now, know that one day God will vindicate your story. Just because God hasn't showed up yet doesn't mean he won't show up someday because God has perfect timing. He arrives and and delivers at just the right time and never a moment before that. So trust in him and wait on his deliverance. Also, don't forget how close God is to you. When destruction seems close, remember that God is closer. God is right there with us, defending us, protecting us. We have the guaranteed presence of God. We have Jesus Christ who entered into our reality to be Emmanuel, God with us. And we have the Holy Spirit of God who carries on that mission and who is constantly God with us, living in our hearts, guiding us, shaping us, interceding on our behalf, right? Giving prayers to God on our behalf. That's what we have. We have the presence of God in the fullest sense. And so we can claim this promise in a real sense as our own. And then the last thing that we can think about with this passage is how amazing it'll be one day to see God. Uh, We don't think about this enough, about the the future that we have, where we'll arrive in the new heavens and new earth, and that'll be incredible. We see the description of it, but nothing will be more incredible than seeing God face to face than knowing the one who is the source of all good, who is perfect righteousness and holiness, to know this one who has written our stories and is going to deliver us one day. That'll be the greatest thing of all.